kingdom of the planet of the apes has arrived in IMAX. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. Hannah, there's a game people play who have worked at the United States Department of Agriculture, and it's called, Does the USDA Do It? How do you play? I read about it in The Fifth Risk, a book by Michael Lewis. It's not dissimilar from Two Truths and a Lie. One person says a thing, right? A far-out, strange thing. And the other person has to guess whether or not it's something the USDA does. All right, hit me. Fire a 106-millimeter recoilless rifle to control avalanches at Mammoth Mountain. Give you a loan to buy a house. Maintain a fleet of aircraft. Inspect every single piece of meat and poultry in the United States. Manage and dispose of mule deer corpses infected with chronic wasting disease. Provide hot lunch for over 30 million school children. Shoot fireworks at geese near airport runways. Research improving algorithms in the wind erosion protection system model for temporal changes in the state of surface condition. They do it all, don't they? They do it all, Hannah. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if they hosted this podcast. <laughs> You're listening to Civics 101. I'm Nick Capodice. I'm Hannah McCarthy. And today we're breaking down a massive combination instant pot air fryer department, the USDA. How it began, what it does, what it spends, and how it affects the lives of everyone in this country. I guess I now know better than to ask what the USDA does. Uh, so can we start with its purpose instead? Well, I would say that from its inception, the USDA's function was to make sure that Americans have enough to eat. This is Marion Nessel, the Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at New York University Emerita, and author of many wonderful books about food and politics, such as Food Politics. And so the, the big question is, how do you go about doing that? Um, and over the years, the, the USDA's main food function was to um, promote industrial agriculture because industrial agriculture produces vast quantities of food um, and to make sure that that food was, was available at a very low cost. Specifically, a cost low enough that people in all levels of income could afford it. So it was created to keep Americans fed, all Americans, and it did this through supporting farmers. Yeah, though its genesis didn't start with farmers. It started with the patent office and seeds. Seeds? Seeds. Seeds? Henry Levitt Ellsworth, the commissioner of patents in the Department of State in the 1830s, he started to collect all these promising kinds of seeds, and he gave them to members of Congress to distribute to farmers in their states. 
and he's called the father of the Department of Agriculture, though he wouldn't live to see the creation of the USDA in 1862. Abraham Lincoln, a former farmhand himself who had run for president on a pro-agriculture campaign, created the Department of Agriculture in the midst of the Civil War. This is a time when over half of Americans were involved with farming. Grover Cleveland uh, incorporated it into the cabinet in 1889, and its purpose was to study seeds, animals, soil, anything to promote the production and support of the American farmer. So how did we get from seeds and soil to that exhaustive list that you read me earlier? When did the USDA start to do other things? It started in the Great Depression. Um, when two things were happening, people didn't have enough food and were on long lines um, to get food handouts. And farmers had no market for their food because people didn't have any money. Um, and so instead of giving it away, they destroyed it. Destroyed it? Why would you destroy food in a time of hunger? This was not out of pure avarice. Politicians in the Roosevelt administration believed that the reason prices were so low for commodities like livestock and cotton was that farmers were just producing way too much. So, to prevent further decline of prices, the government just bought 10 million acres of cotton crops in the South and plowed right under them. The AAA, the Agriculture Adjustment Act, seeks to bolster farm income by ordering crops plowed under, and millions of acres of wheat, cotton, corn are left unplanted. And yet, men are hungry. And there were several shocking incidents during the Depression of farmers destroying piglets um, and animals and just, you know, slaughtering them and throwing them in a big heap when there were people who were starving for lack of food. Millions upon millions of pigs and cows were bought by the government, killed, and just buried in the ground. And there's a huge scandal about it, naturally. Farmers were horrified at how the livestock they'd raised was slaughtered and buried, and Americans were shocked that at a time of immense hunger, we buried food. And Hannah, if you or any of our listeners are horrified to hear this, you're not going to like the fact that in 2020, due to supply chain issues during the pandemic, vegetables rotted on the fields, millions of pigs and chickens were culled, and millions of gallons of fresh milk were dumped down the drain every day. But back to when this happened in the 1930s, the government stepped in and said it would buy food from farmers and distribute it to people who needed it. And this was the genesis of the Food Stamp Program. And before we talk about the Food Stamp Program and its modern-day iteration of SNAP, that's Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, I want to talk quickly about the modern-day budget of the USDA. Their total 2021 budget was about $150 billion. That's the fourth-largest budget of an executive department. And do you know what percentage of that budget is devoted to nutrition and nutritional assistance. What percentage? 75%. And that's not just SNAP. It's school lunch programs, which we're going to get to later. It's WIC, Women, Infants, and Children. 15 programs in all. Wait, hearing about how it started, I, I would have expected the USDA to spend the majority of its budget on farming. So this is surprising. And, and by the way, how do SNAP benefits actually work? Who is eligible to use them? Sure. We are scheduling a separate 
deep dive episode on governmental assistance programs, including the complex history of government cheese and what you can and can't get under these myriad programs. But briefly, families who make a certain income are entitled to SNAP benefits. And currently, a family of three with a combined income of $29,000 a year or less is eligible. And as an interesting aside, you know how there's all these programs that uh, give rewards for using an EBT or SNAP card at your local farmer's market? I've seen at farmer's markets around the country. You get an extra $10 worth of groceries or something when you use your EBT card there. Yeah, that is how food stamps initially worked in the 1930s. If you bought a certain number of food stamps, you got extra stamps for buying commodities that farmers produced. And that worked for a while um, and went on up to the Second World War when everybody was employed and so um, poverty levels went right down. And after the Second World War, poverty returned. There were proposals for a food stamp program where the stamps would be used at retail stores. Um, the farmers got dropped out of the picture, and the uh, the program ended up as a retail program where you had stamps that you could take to uh, the store and use for pretty much anything that was in any retail grocery store. And they changed it from stamps to the EBT debit card, partly to reduce stigma. Uh, they came in little books of multicolored stamps. And uh, our producer, Jackie, who was once in the program, told me when you went to the store to use them, it was embarrassing because everybody knew you were using them and they would judge your purchases. Can we also talk about the criticism of the program? Yeah, the majority of criticism from lawmakers regarding SNAP is related to fraud. Now dozens more have warrants out for their arrest. The sheriff's office is going after those fraudulently using their EBT cards. Our Alex Hobson yeah, well, um, as with any federal program, there are always the potentiality for fraud. Um, and the investigations of fraud in SNAP usually show that there's not much. But there is some. It would be irresponsible to argue that there isn't any. You can trade food stamps. You can sell food stamps. You can do all kinds. Or, or the benefit cards. You can do the same with the benefit cards. A study from 2017 found that 60% of Americans believe that people misrepresent their financial situation to get food benefits. And that is patently untrue. You and your family's social security numbers are run through numerous databases. It's next to impossible to lie to get SNAP benefits. And while there are some instances of fraud, it is far more frequently people selling their food stamps to, say, restaurants who use them to get the food that they will sell. In 2014, there were about 40 million Americans using SNAP and 45,000 individuals disqualified for fraud. That's 0.1%. What always amazes me about it is the tens of millions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars that are spent every year on fraud prevention because fraud prevention is a big issue particularly for people who are against the government having a role in poverty reduction. And so there's a big focus on trying to prevent fraud. And I'm always astounded by the tens to hundreds of millions of dollars that's spent on fraud prevention every year. But the Department of Agriculture takes it very seriously because it has to take it very seriously for political reasons. And so, you know, for me, the political question is how much money do you want to spend 
on um, reducing a very tiny amount of fraud. Um, and apparently you want to spend a lot. If one last question tied to nutrition and assistance, it's about something on the wall of my classroom in fourth grade. Good nutrition and physical activity are fuel for your child's mind and body. boy, Pinocchio. And the food pyramid will help you find the right balance. Just remember, every color, every day. Okay, yes, the USDA food pyramid. We're going to get into that and school lunches and the rest of the things the USDA does right after the break. But first, we always try to let our listeners know about our free newsletter, Extra Credit. It is short, it's goofy, shows up in your inbox every two weeks. Nick assures me that the next one will explain why milk and only milk is allowed as a non-water beverage on the Senate floor. Sign up at civics101podcast.org. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes has arrived in IMAX. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Civics 101 is supported in part by you, you right there, you listening. Donate to our show at civics101podcast.org or we'll cause an avalanche with a giant cannon. Okay, tell me about the food pyramid. So the USDA tells us what we should be eating. Here's Mary Nessel again. The USDA and Health and Human Services jointly produce dietary guidelines. Those are supposed to be for policymakers, even though everybody uses them as advice to the public. And they've issued food guides since the early 1900s. The most recent one was in 2010. Um, and that was the My Plate Food Guide, the thing with the squares on it, one of which is protein, drives me crazy. There's fruits, vegetables, grains, and protein. And milk off on the side. And, uh, you know, vegetables and um, grains have protein. Anyway, it's very confusing. With as much drama as the Department of Agriculture could muster, and with help from the First Lady, America today got a new symbol for good nutrition. What's more useful than a plate? What's more simple than a plate? The My Plate was designed to replace the 1992 pyramid, which was enormously controversial, um, I think, because everybody understood it. I thought they should have kept it and tweaked it a little bit, but they didn't listen to me. The food pyramid controversy was fairly epic, and it was a battle between nutritionists and the meat and dairy lobbies. 
the guideline in 1977 from nutritionists was eat less meat. And now we've got a pyramid that says eat two to three servings of meat every day. And then we had huge scuffles around the graphic design, like the size of the glass of milk on the pyramid. What kind of meat is shown in the protein section? Is it a steak or a turkey leg? But the food pyramid is indeed gone. Now it is my plate. And while we're still in the mind frame of your fourth grade classroom, Hannah, uh, the USDA funds school lunches across the country. This is one of the very rare ways the federal government gives money to schools through funding free and reduced hot lunch programs. And so the USDA determines the nutritional standards of the school meals, reimburses schools for the school meals, um, and runs the show. And so, you know, once again, you're dealing with nutrition standards in an agency whose main responsibility is industrial agriculture. And so you have the Department of Agriculture. Um, there's a small office that is issuing dietary guidelines to eat less saturated fat, salt, and sugars at the same time that it's dealing with sugar production and sugar beets and cane and all of these other things. I mean, it's a crazy system. Do you remember the ketchup is a vegetable debate? Oh, I do. Was it the USDA that redefined things like ketchup and relish as uh, vegetables so schools could serve them? Yes. Uh, this was during the Carter administration and later the Reagan administration. They loosened food restrictions on federally funded school lunches, and it caused a huge backlash. Uh, those restrictions, by the way, have since changed. But what happened with the Obama administration was that one of the accomplishments of Michelle Obama's Let's Move campaign was to improve the nutrition standards for school meals. The lobbyists went to work, particularly the lobbyists for pizza, potatoes, and um, tomato paste. I mean, kind of amazing, actually. And they just go straight to Congress. And then Congress then passes regulations or instructs the Department of Agriculture to back off. And I don't know how much big potato and big tomato paste make on supplying schools with lunches every year. But I want to mention that under the old rules, there was a famous loophole where two tablespoons of tomato paste on a piece of pizza counted as eight tablespoons of vegetables because that tomato paste was at one time a lot more fresh tomatoes. Come on. I wonder if we could get to the A part of the USDA at this point. I mean, you said that back when the USDA was created, more than half of America was involved with farming. But that, that's definitely not the case now, right? Like, what's the percentage now? It's about 1.3% of the U.S.'s employed population. But even so, there is a lot of farming going on in the U.S., which I'll get to in a minute. First off, the USDA decides how it supports farms in the U.S. via a massive piece of legislation called the Farm Bill. It's the Agricultural Act of whatever year it is. There's a new one about every five years. Um, and this is a bill that's a thousand pages of small print, a table of contents that usually goes on for 10 or 15 pages of small print. Um, it is so absolutely enormous that it's incomprehensible. There may be people who have an overview of it that um, is reasonable, but I spent a year 
trying to deal with it and found it absolutely impossible. I just couldn't do it. Marion told me she came up with what I think is a very cool idea for a course to teach a piece of legislation, to teach the farm bill. And she said with utter humility and generosity that it was a catastrophic failure. I tried to make a list of all the programs that it covers um, and I couldn't. I gave up after a hundred or so. Uh, Each of those programs has detailed requirements, its own set of lobbyists, its own set of constituents, um, its own target audience. I mean, each of them is a story in its own. And in discussing people on the Agriculture Committee of Congress, staff people, and I had one of them come and talk to my class because I thought she was really remarkable in her understanding of the Farm Bill. My question for her was, how'd you learn it? And she said it took her about eight years And she learned it because lobbyists would come to the Department of Agriculture and she would sit in on the lobbying meetings and listen to the lobbyists talk about the details of those programs. And that's how she learned the programs one by one. In 2021, agriculture-related corporations spent $108 million on lobbyists. These are people they paid to speak with members of the House and the Senate to get things passed in the farm bill that helped those companies immensely. And the benefit to the politicians is also staggering. Uh, For example, in 2019, Representative Mike Conaway, he headed the House Committee on Agriculture, received $850,000 in contributions from agribusinesses. And thus ends this episode's short aside on lobbying, which should never be far from any topic we discuss. So it sounds like the farm bill is Byzantine and deeply influenced by lobbyists, just like most legislation (laughs) in the United States. Regardless, the outcome is a piece of legislation that helps American farms and farmers, right? Hmm. And how many farms do we have in the U.S., by the way? So today we have two million farms, about And it's been pretty stable for a couple decades. This is Jennifer Ift. She's a professor of agricultural policy at Kansas State University. The whole thing of what is a farm, and we talk about this a lot. What is a farm? You could do a whole episode on that. And I start off with my students. I say, who cares what a farm is? If you want to call yourself a farmer, it doesn't matter. But it matters a lot for taxes and it matters a lot for policy. So the USDA says a farm is if you have the capacity to produce $1,000 of sales within a year. Doesn't take much to get to $1,000. So you have 2 million farms. A half of them are very small. And half of them lose money farming every year. They're not farming as a business. The majority of farms in the U.S. are not operated as a business. Because you can't run a business and lose money every year. They're reliant on other sources of income. The USDA supports those small farms by giving them a vast array of grants and loans. The big farms they support via subsidies government money paid to farms for growing things. And the most common subsidy is something called crop insurance. Crop insurance protects you against unexpected changes in revenue. So in the spring, let's say I'm going to plant plant some corn. I know how much I produce in the past. So I have a, a yield that I could expect in a normal year. I can buy a policy that says, okay, if my revenue in the fall 
is less than 80% of what I expected, I'll get a payout to make up that difference. But crop insurance does not guarantee a profit for a farm operation. It has nothing to do with expenses. It has nothing to do with how efficient your operation is. It has nothing to do with non-weather or, or sort of price-related losses. If you're, you're very inefficient, you have high costs, if there's human failure, you could still lose money. So in other words, just because a farm gets support from the government, that doesn't mean that they're guaranteed to succeed. Absolutely not. And you'd be hard-pressed to find an op-ed from anyone claiming that farming is an easy and secure occupation, subsidized or not. But when it comes to those subsidies, Jennifer said there are three crops that dominate. Corn, soybeans, wheat. Efforts to sort of broaden that are ongoing. But still, dollar-wise, corn, soybeans, and wheat. And there's a reason Jennifer started with corn. It is our biggest crop in the U.S. by far. In 2019, $2.7 billion were paid in corn subsidies. So much that it's not needed for food or even feed for animals. So that 40% of the amount that's grown, again, that's not an exact percentage, uh, but it's a big chunk. Uh, corn production is ethanol for automobiles and goes up in smoke. Most of what the USDA does is to support the production of food for animals and fuel for automobiles. Ethanol is mixed with gasoline to make a more efficient, lower emission fuel. In December 2021, the USDA gave $800 million to ethanol producers who had lost income during the height of the pandemic when people just weren't driving as much. And I have to add, it's not just subsidies that help farmers. The USDA funds an enormous amount of research into sustainability, seed genetics, soil, fertilizers, anything to help farms make food. So we have fewer farms in America now, but their output is exponentially greater. Nick, we have done a lot of shows together at this point, uh, but this one feels more than any other like it is all over the place. And I get it. So, too, is the USDA. But how did that happen? How did a relatively simple mission involving seeds... Seeds? ...and the patent office turn into this? Remember when I told you about Marion's failed class where she tried to teach the farm bill? Yeah. She told me that the first activity she did in that class with her students was to come up with a new one. On the first day of class, I asked the students what they thought a reasonable agricultural policy would be. They laid it out. On the first day of class, I mean, these were these were master students. They were in food studies. Um, they knew exactly what a reasonable agricultural policy should do. It should provide enough food for people to eat. It should provide a living for the farmers who produce the food. It should be linked to health so that uh, it's producing healthy food and promotes the health of the American population. It should be linked to climate change so it doesn't uh, make climate change worse. I mean, it should be kind to animals. I mean, it was not very hard to think up things that a, a reasonable, thoughtful, integrated food policy ought to do. And, and then to look at the reality of it was absolutely astounding. Okay, why can students lay it out, but we can't make it a reality? What happened to the USDA? Well, it grew. It just grew. Um, you know, it's, um, these things were incremental. 
This is how you end up with USDA employees shooting fireworks at geese near airport runways. The USDA runs the Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, preventing invasive species from endangering crops and livestock and such. And that department is made up of six other departments, one of which is Wildlife Services, which manages the relationship between us and wildlife. And they're the ones who have to keep the geese off the runways. So I'll reiterate what Marion said. It just grew. And so, first of all, you have a bill that's so big that nobody can understand it. I mean, you're expecting a member of Congress to read this? No, that's an unreasonable, that's an unreasonable expectation. What about the agriculture staff people on their committees? Well, some of them are going to be good and some of them aren't. But I'm arguing that no one person can possibly have a vision for all of this. So there's no vision in this. And the people who are coming in and arguing for one or another policy are people with a vested interest in that policy. And they're paid. Lobbyists are paid. And if you don't understand why advocates for healthier policies don't get anywhere, you have to look at who's paid to do what. I mean, most food advocates aren't paid to do lobbying. It's really hard to get a job where you're paid to do that kind of thing because you're not the groups that you're working for aren't making the kind of money that big agricultural producers are. Well, that's the USDA. I could go on. I would go on. I've barely started. But I got to get working on this episode about executive powers and the price of gasoline. Today's episode was produced by me, Nick Capodice, with Hannah McCarthy. Our staff includes Christina Phillips and Jackie Fulton. Rebecca Lavoy is our executive producer and definitely played percussion on the song she and all other former band participants call Rodeo. While much of the rest of the world calls it Beef, It's What's for Dinner by Aaron Copeland. Also featured in this episode. As for the rest of the music in this episode, it was by Kevin McLeod, Chris Zabriskie, Emily Sprague, Martin Shellikins, Div Kid, Sarah the Instrumentalist, and this here is Proletur. Kind of like their style. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio. All right, see you next time. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. The Angie's List You Know and Trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today.